this week, how do I think about what might come next? But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important Not Important. It's science for people who give a shit. Like you, hopefully. You can hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter or essay or whatever we want to call it and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. They're incredible. There's almost 170 of them now. Um, you can find the email or web version of this and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or write in your show notes wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now, today's big thought experiment. One reason I write these essays is so I can work out for myself what the facts on the ground say about what's next, knowing full well that most efforts to predict even the near future will fail, right? Basically, what I want to understand, though, is what's the near-term product of all the inputs or shocks we're experiencing right now, wherever, times the number of people affected? And then what comes after that? Now, there's two practical questions related to these. One, of course, is how accurate are the answers? And number two is how far out can we predict and adjust for them? Good news, it depends, and it depends. So before we dive into how I try to think about them, which is a process but messy, let's take a look around at what's going on. If it feels like a little bit like everything is chaos right now, you are not alone. Here's a very incomplete list of what's on my mind this morning. Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, Hezbollah, Iran, China, solar and wind power, transmission, India growth and nationalism, Africa growth and coups, Antarctic ice, uh, the U.S. economy, inflation, Acapulco, 2023 elections, the 2024 elections, fertilizers, uh, rice, AI disinformation, old-fashioned disinformation, um, natural gas disinformation, the heat in South America, fossil fuel subsidies, endless shootings, EV charging, um, the care economy, global debt, mostly in the South, uh, vaccine inequity and uh, hesitancy, U.S. home ownership affordability, uh, Chinese EVs, uh, Google's on trial, doesn't want you to know, uh, hydrogen hubs, Canadian wildfires still, educational inequality, Toyota's mythical solid-state batteries, UK clean energies pullback, uh, immigration everywhere and deportations, El Nino, Rio Negro water levels, uh, malaria vaccines, and it's also spreading, the end of the auto union strike, maybe, U.S. House of Representative issues, Colorado River water rights negotiations, again, Chevron buying Hess, and of course, 1989, Taylor's version, the deluxe edition. So, anyways, I get it, you know? It's a lot. It's always been a lot, of course. It's a different a lot. But globalism, the EU, social networks, food and fossil fuels, and where they intersect, like fertilizers, climate change, um, China, uh, Putin, Trump, Netanyahu, TSMC, Brexit, the transition away from fossil fuels, inflation, again, for a variety of things, and COVID have reshaped and tied together and then hastily untied many of the fundamental constructs of the last four decades. All that's happened, right? Which is why you hear a lot now about a polycrisis or polycrises, a multipolar world, et cetera, et cetera. So how do I go about trying to understand these so I can help folks? Besides, you know, 
clonopin or gummies. So I find it's helpful to start with two questions, right? Is the situation localized or is it commoditized? Now, these are really decidedly imperfect terms, but again, it's how I use them. So you can either borrow them or use something else or whatever. Let me explain though. A localized solution is something like a wildfire, a hurricane, war, drought, or an election. Uh, it's fundamentally tied to a place, even if it's, our, if, if it's already grown beyond that place or if it has layers of externalities beyond that place. So, But we're not there yet, so just hold on. A commoditized situation is a virus, uh, global heating, sea level rise, inflation, semiconductor chips, EVs, disinformation, etc., Something measured loosely in units, not place. Um, it can spread to different places, but the units don't really have a standard definition, so you're welcome. Next, I try to identify what I want to understand out of this, so I ask myself a version of these along the way, over and over. Will these shocks continue as is, like known knowns? Will they grow larger themselves, so known unknowns? Uh, will the units grow, or will the geographical thing grow? Uh, will they spill over into adjacent territories or systems? So geographical, or economical, or societal. Or will the underlying conditions inspire similar lateral shocks, authoritarianism and populism in other places? Or will there be new unforeseen shocks to the system, right? Those are the unknown unknowns. So sure, yeah, there is the basic isolated problem or progress, right, at hand. So Israel and Hamas keep missling each other and thousands of civilians and kids are dying. One. Two, there's finally an honest-to-goodness malaria vaccine. Or two. Great. Now we get to dig a little deeper. And a key tool I like to use is called a mind map. And what's a mind map? As far as, again, I use it. You know that always sunny uh, gif where Charlie has... 50 pages of a red line conspiracy theory taped to the wall, and he's waving his hands trying to explain himself like a crazy person. That's basically how my mind work. Uh, my mind maps. A mind map is, to me, how it all comes together and the different places it connects. It's the co-benefits and the threat multipliers for each input. And if known knowns, which isn't guarantee, what sort of impact those have, or in the past, ones like them have had on the world. My definition of co-benefits are secondary or often indirect benefits of, for example, electrifying U.S. vehicles. Not only do we reduce new emissions by one-third and slow new global heating, we also reduce air pollution and cardiovascular conditions. Now, you can usually reverse co-benefits to find a threat multiplier. So combustion vehicles not only drive new emissions and increase global heating— they contribute to local air pollution and drive cardiovascular conditions, like childhood asthma, which is a shitty hand to be dealt on a day-to-day -day basis, and also a weakness when, for example, a novel respiratory virus comes along. Obviously, for both of these examples, uh, bikes, walking, and electrified, frequent, and reliable public transportation are the real answer here, not more cars. So, threat multipliers are... They're like close cousins of coupled risk. It's when multiple things can go wrong together, right? Look, in either version of this, you're acknowledging a variety of 
interconnected systems where multiple parts depend on one another intentionally or unintentionally. Anyways, you get the point. Mine are not pretty, but the visual for me is immensely helpful to see what's there, how it connects, and what's missing. So you can fill it out by asking questions like, what is the basic thing, like we talked about? Uh, a malaria vaccine? What are the current externalities, uh, which haven't been breached yet? What else am I missing here? So I hesitate to use too many popular cognitive shortcuts or frameworks, and instead try to be um, some combination of analytical, probabilistic, and qualitative, too, about any given factor, reminding myself every second that my intuition, much less any domain expertise, in any particular discipline is, uh, shall we say, extremely limited. Employing frameworks you pick up from some Twitter boy without a ruthless consideration for your own expertise or whether those frameworks hold up in real life is asking for big trouble. Because overconfidence in yourself or that framework is a killer. And I have to say, this is where being a generalist is really a plus. And sure, yeah, I'm making excuses for being a moron, but truly, and I promised I wouldn't talk about systems thinking here, the ability to only go an inch deep and not get caught up in the details, but also a mile wide, so you can see how a variety of pieces might connect together, is pretty helpful. This uh, skill also helps you actually see the forest for the trees, even if deep down you don't really know if that one's a tree or technically a bush, or even if a bush is a small tree, I don't know. Or is it like how a pony is not actually a baby horse, which seems ridiculous. Anyways, the X factor in that problem and the whole thing that you're conducting the experiment here is people. Now, people as individuals and groups are both very predictable and completely irrational. So you have to simultaneously include humanity as an X factor and also know that you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. Now, I want to be clear real quick. If you're asking, I'm not talking about what actions to take yet. That's pretty different than usual. We're nowhere near that part of the question. That's not really even the point today. Practically, what this means is you've got to toss your beliefs and principles out the window during this part of the process because, again, at least in these cases, you're trying to understand a problem in which you're probably not a significant input, if at all. Not yet, at least. Maybe not ever. Different if you're a policymaker or you've got a certain amount of corporate control or investments, um, and we'll get there. Not yet. Call me. Anyways, let's quickly blow through a honestly relatively simple example, like the transition to electric vehicles. So the Prius, God, I loved my Prius, was the first glorious taste of something different. But the electric transition began in earnest probably, I don't know, 10 years ago with the Tesla Model S. The Model 3 and the Model Y followed behind and just exploded, sometimes for real, and legacy car makers finally raced to adapt, just as Tesla was running out of tax credits because they were selling so many, but there was no long-term congressional plan to support them. Chicken or egg thing. We'll come back to that. So, for a few years, uh, Tesla went through production hell, especially on the three. They made cars intense, and they actually made most of their money in those few years from selling emissions credits to other car makers and from crypto. But eventually, they emerged as a category leader, and they've grew, they grew the entire pie. 
What happened then is we finally inexplicably passed the IRA, inspiring more permanent tax credits, at least semi-permanent, uh, at the federal and state levels. We inspired an insane amount of domestic private investment in cars and batteries and factories for both of those. Theoretically, the nail in the coffin for combustion. But it also pissed off a bunch of our trade allies. For example, it throttled the short-term success of super cool and beloved EVs like uh, those from Hyundai Kia. But again, also, it's not quite so simple. New EV companies still can't sell directly to customers in most states. That's a secondary uh, thing. Inflation is still a nightmare, so purse strings are tight at home. So people are actually buying way fewer EVs than automakers thought. So now there's talk about, hey, maybe we're going too fast with this transition, when in reality, we can't transition fast enough because the knock-on effects of one-third of our emissions continuing as is are wide-reaching and compounding as climate change speeds up and billion-dollar disasters become a weekly thing. The torque is compounding every single day. Anyways, electric two-wheelers are selling and renting like crazy in Asia. Chinese EV cars have taken over much of the rest of the world, including Europe, despite a Tesla factory in China. Meanwhile, we discovered a shitload of lithium in the U.S., but the rest of the required minerals for electrification for anything are in China, or even more controversially, somehow, under the ocean bed. In addition, domestic auto workers have been striking for a month and a half uh, because they're more committed to the future than the CEO of GM, who claims paying the unions would put the companies in dire straits. That might be ending soon, and I should note that she made $29 million in each of the last two years and at least $20 million every year of the past four. So the point is, a lot of externalities from this idea of transitioning from gas to electric. It's complicated. It affects people and systems all down the line. Um, Geonationalism, minerals, this whole shit. So the shocks have really only begun there. The point is, you can see my process is, again, a little messy, but there's an idea here. There's a process to it. So the point is, the EV question is pretty analogous with some directly related inputs for the transition to clean energy uh, for a world where Africa and India are among the youngest and most populous places on Earth while also dealing with sea level rise and droughts. For crops, bred for more temperate climates that don't work as well anymore. For insurance markets, fire, flood, you name it. For disinformation of all kinds. Housing, which has more externalities than most. It won't always be that way, that they're all analogous in some way, but the more you do this process, the better you get at it. And truly, like, I'm constantly fucking with this system. Probably too much. Anyways, let's add on a new, very important layer. One key function is to change your desired outcome, frankly, from an outcome, like what's going to happen with X, because that's not usually the way it goes, and then things happen after, and instead use probability to detail out a range of potential next outcomes, next steps, whatever, and then not get too attached to any one of them. Now, I know this is less fun. It's also less very hard. Our brains don't intuitively do this, right? Our, our primal tools and emotions, our fears and our shortcuts got us this far, but they're not going to help you today. It's really important to remember how relatively brief our stint in modernity has been, truly. We're in this big rush to normalize it socially, but Biologically, in evolution, things work much, much slower, right? People who forget this say stupid shit, like, audiobooks aren't real books, when, in fact, we've only had writing for like 
4,000 years and mass-produced books for about 500, but we've had some version of spoken language for something like 100 to 200,000 years, which means like five to 8,000 generations telling stories and sharing survival tips around the campfire. So yeah, I mean, look, books are awesome. They are my favorite thing. Written is probably improvement if you need it to be. And yes, the act of handwriting helps us, including me, develop our own ideas and improve our memory, even though Socrates and Plato vehemently disagreed with that. But to be fair, the more you're forced to explain things out loud, the better you get at that shit, too. The point is, everything's hard enough. Chill out. Let's have some perspective here. Let people read however they want to read. It's the same with probability and statistics. Most of our decisions for most of our time were actually life or death, and we brought enormous bias to the table because that's all we had. We experienced the fundamental necessities selectively through our own adventures or our kin, tacking on some pretty siloed interpretations, assumptions, and conclusions, because that's all we knew, and that's how we survived, or didn't. Conversely, back to the present, staying open-minded and constantly looking for new evidence that might adjust or even trash your whole range of potential outcomes is not only basically the scientific method, but also really important for getting a handle on potential near-term futures, and also your anxiety. So, Similarly, getting to the bottom of a problem, the real bottom, by trying to identify the root cause or causes versus a bunch of lazy proximate causes is really step one. It's easy to build this range of outcomes in a safe space, a no bad ideas kind of way. But I would also honestly question, once you've scribbled them out, how often each actually happens in the real world and why or why not. What are other examples where this kind of outcome, the ones on the margins, have actually happened before? Not that they won't, but be honest. Because I find this step tends to push back on any sort of confirmation bias I might have, or operating on the extremes, or when I try to get to the action part too fast. So next part is really important, because again, it's about you. I need you to ask yourself, where am I emotional or invested or related to this problem. Again, we're not talking about action yet. Scribble your answers in the margins so you remember it every time you're trying to really understand what's going on. How do you need to intentionally, if temporarily, marginalize your principles or values to really grok what's going on here? Because, again, your feelings do not have a seat at the table right now. I guess you could call this a version of one of the frameworks, right? First principles. It's separating underlying ideas or facts from any assumptions about them or based on them, especially yours. I guess you can also just call it self-awareness, but the point is I've written a lot about how we've made our most basic necessities more expensive and less accessible. These things are actually non-reducible, right? We can't survive without them, full stop. It doesn't really matter what your opinion is on air. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you need air, you need water, food, shelter, power, health, care of some form. But if the situation you're trying to understand is Gazans are running out of fresh water, so they're drinking from the sea, and that enrages you, as it should, that's not going to make it any easier to understand why Israel's cabinet completely disagrees with one another on what it means to actually root out Hamas once and for all, and how to go about doing that while being justified and also not pissing off the entire world it's much less what you should like post to Instagram about it. 
I get it. It's really hard to keep this part out, whether you're an elected official or CEO or an investor, or if you build your company in a movement on helping people take effective action for the betterment of everyone. Emotions cannot play a part here for you. Let's come back for a moment to that. Have any of these potential near futures or outcomes ever happened before? I think it's helpful, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm going to write about it. We have to wrap our head around the fact now that we are standing a bit on the outside of time, which will only increase in coming decades. So that's a complicated one. But the point is, the past doesn't repeat. It rhymes, et cetera, et cetera. But among everything else, there are three real factors that should underpin most of your questions before you even get to the specific reality on the ground or about disinformation or emissions. One, humans have never, ever been more connected, more aware than they are right now, for better or worse. Not even close. Two, humans have never had access to so much instant computing power. And three, this is a little different, humans have never understood and faced that our largest cities, where most people live, will be increasingly uninsurable because of sea level rise as the rest of this century unfolds. This applies to even newer cities like Lagos. There's an actual ticking clock, even if virtually all of our decision-making ignores it to this point. So it doesn't matter which problem or opportunity or progress you're looking at, you got to keep those three things in mind. So the circumstances of the past should inform your calculus, right? Raising a second child is generally so much easier than the first, however different they might be. Because a phrase like, California is always 80 degrees and sunny, doesn't really apply anymore, you know? So similarly, because of all of that, the next steps may not unfold like they have in the past. Be careful how you weight factors like unstoppable sea level rise and something more theoretical, like fusion power or AGI or whatever. And then consider again too, and this is important, and good news it's not about you, the human element. How leaders, wannabe leaders, have much more reach than ever before and are thus more exposed than ever before, like cancel culture for democracies or dictators. We talked recently about why the youths are so pissed off, namely, succinctly, because we're undoing so much of our progress and they're watching it go down live. So let's flip it and put ourselves briefly in the shoes of a world leader or CEO of a top five tech company. Democracies are being threatened or just dwindling. They're more fragile than they've been in a very long time. The market is dominated by a few players and seems disconnected from geopolitics. And it may become even more so that way with AI. Weapons are more powerful than ever before, even if the most powerful are so far used the least. So there's more risk and greater implications to every decision than ever before. There are more people potentially affected and more people watching. So I really would not encourage you to spend very long at all inside the mind of a policymaker, elected or not, for these purposes. But do understand this. After considering their own externalities, if they do this step or even give a shit about it, which isn't a given, the next logical step is to ask, hey, what is the adjustment cost to not let this externality flank my best laid plans? Here's a fun example. Ulysses S. Grant is remembered not only because in isolation he was a great general, but because Henry Halleck and McKellen before him was such an indecisive shit show on game day, whatever their other factors. 
so continuing to let Halleck lead the Union army risked everything and made Honest Abe very, very sad. Every battle the Union lost, which was a lot for a while, forced Lincoln's hand. But however well-considered and historically impactful Lincoln's final reorg was, understand that the internet means everyone in power today, or trying for it, is operating from an all-time reactionary bubble. Everything is live all the time. Fast interests are dwarfing slow interests in many cases where historically they might not have. So yeah, Lincoln had his testy little team of rivals, but today, the richest man on earth, who inexplicably also commands this satellite Ukraine uses for internet and battlefield communications, also lords over his own social network and takes cues from patriots like CryptoBoy69. On the one hand, the internet has changed warfare forever. Like steroids in sports, it went from a nice-to-have to a must-have. Ukraine is unimaginably lucky to have Starlink. But what does it mean for their war? And then for the rest of Europe, for NATO, for the U.S., for food exports, when one man can turn it off. It's like there will be blood meets Austin Powers meets Dr. Strangelove. What these factors often come down to is the influential person's level of trust in their own intuition and in their advisors. Are they operating from a map or the whole territory? Who drew the map? What map do they really want to see? What are they incentivized to see? Who can change that? Who needs to go? Now look, we're entering assumptions territory, which is dangerous and muddles the whole thing. But that's why I said we're only hanging out here very briefly. Every time you make an assumption, test it against everything else you've got there. What belief led you to that assumption? How can you most thoroughly interrogate it? What data are you using? Why did you choose it? Advisors change all the time, right? Elon hired Linda. Putin, Zelensky, and Netanyahu have fired generals and defense ministers galore. Everything changes. Bezos quit a few years ago. Amazon is nightmare to shop in. The WGA won and got AI benefits. Kevin McCarthy got canned. Is Kamala up to the job? What will the job actually be in two years after however long Mike Johnson lasts as speaker? Every time power changes hands, we have to, we get to do the math all over again to account for both the irreducible all over again and the unaccountable to eventually try to put ourselves and our resources in a place where we can put our thumb on the scale of history. Because the people factor for you and all of it is both the most and least predictable part of your math every time. The vast majority of U.S. voters know who they're voting for well before every election. Meanwhile, Biden just reluctantly restarted Trump's border wall. Who knew? The human condition really makes you appreciate the easier components, like whether or not we can spin up a vaccine for a novel coronavirus in less than a decade, which we did in 12 months, or if we can finally factor in fusion power into our mind map. We cannot. The point is, once you've gone through this process a few times, and you're feeling good about your range of outcomes, do two things. One, Understand that random shit, or at least the least likely shit, really does happen. Not often. That's why it's random or rare. But like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You're not really developing a plan here yet. It's more of a sit rep, situation rep, which is why Eisenhower's quote helps too. He said, 
I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. The second thing you need to do is go engage in some real-life discourse with people who aren't hacks, which is key, agree on the facts, and then go from there. Ask questions of each other and your models and your inputs. Follow up, keep going. And finally, take some action. Because two things can be true at once. There are millions of people fighting every day for radical change. And we can't do it without you. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Here's your relevant action steps. Number one, donate to help the Blue-Green Alliance unite labor unions and environmental organizations to create clean jobs, develop clean infrastructure, and pursue fair trade. Number two, volunteer with 314 Action and help get people who care about facts and evidence elected. Number three, get educated about the direction of our food systems by reading the paradigms of agriculture. Number four, be heard about restoring and expanding the child tax credit and urge your representative to support the American Family Act. Number five, invest in clean energy using research that separates hype from reality from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. That is it for this week. You got feedback, questions, opinions, I want to hear it. Email them to questions at importantnotimportant.com. Hit subscribe, please, in your podcast player right now to get next week's issue straight to your feed. Go deeper, of course, visit importantnotimportant.com. Thanks for being a part of our community, and thanks for giving a shit.